My name is Matthew Libatique, ASC, and you are listening to the Cinematography Podcast, the one and only. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Good evening, Ilya. How are you doing tonight? Good evening, Ben. Uh, I'm doing okay. How about you? Uh, my wife, Alicia, and I did something frigging crazy this week. Whoa. We went to see a movie in the theater. You guys are crazy. <laughs> good, good. We are how, crazy. how was it? Uh, it was awesome. We went and saw Nobody, the new oh, movie yeah. starring Bob Odenkirk. Really yeah, good movie I, to see on the big screen. I'd like uh, to see that. We went to, uh, there's a Cinemark not far from us in North Hollywood. And we, we went there on like a Wednesday afternoon, I think. And uh, there were like two other people in the theater. Nice. And it was all contact free, getting the tickets and everything like that. And uh, we did not get snacks. And we sat there in our N95 masks and uh, watched our first movie on the big screen in over a year. Sweet. Now, did those two other people in the theater come and sit on either side of you? No, no, actually, you you're not, you have to space out. like you, uh, Designated seats. They have like a yeah. whole bunch of tape across the seats, and you can sit here and here. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, gotcha. I mean, They didn't have tape, but like there was, uh, at Cinemark, it's assigned seating anyway, so they don't assign seats that are next to each other. There, there were some people in the row in front of us, but they were, you know, probably like 15 feet away at least. And as you uh, alluded to in our last episode, I went on vacation for a couple of days to the desert and I went to a zoo, which is like 99% outside. And they did have one of those animal shows at the zoo and mm-hmm. they did a whole socially distant seating thing too, where it was all marked out where there was only like little stickers on the ground, like you can sit here. And so we didn't sit next to anyone else. And it was a delightful time. We had, a, you know, kids and enjoyed the show and uh, the zoo was fantastic. Well, and, and uh, we're going to get into theatrical here in a second, but first, who's on the show today? A returning guest of the show, good friend of the show, Maddie Libatique. Maddie Libatique is back on the show, and uh, I'm really happy to have him. This is part one of a two-parter interview with him. Well, Maddie Libatique has a career that goes back to the 90s, which I'm informed is over 20 years ago. So uh, actually, like <laughs> that, that almost has, 30 years ago. Yes, it has been more than 20 years since the 90s. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, and in that time, he has worked on just an amazing array of movies. And he's somebody who like, uh, there are DPs who I will just go see a movie if they shot it. And he is on that list. I have loved his work. I first noticed it in uh, Darren Aronofsky's Pie. And I found him to be just one of the most fascinating people to talk to. He just, we, we always talk about art, craft, and philosophy. And I just really appreciated how much philosophy he got in there. Cause you know, to me, that's the most evergreen kind of content we can give people is your approach to the work, your approach to your career, your approach to this insane business that we're in. And uh, I was very excited to uh, talk to him and he did not disappoint. We've had some really, really great two-parters. And if you're new to to the Cinematography Podcast and uh, you go back and listen to like uh, Bradford Young or Wally oh Pfister, my God, yeah. uh, I mean, we ha- we've, we've had some in- incredible, incredible long interviews. 
and uh, I don't want to build this one up too much, but it doesn't disappoint. This is right at, at the same, totally on par with those other ones. So if you are a fan of hearing uh, your cinematography heroes talk at length about a wide range of art, craft, and philosophy topics, buckle up. That's what's coming up here in a, in a couple of minutes, and we're not going to belabor this too much. But we do need to get to close focus because... It was actually a really interesting week at the box office. I mean, uh, it's something that we haven't been able to say for over a year. No. And, and you know, it wasn't like it was just the weekend. But if you count the five day Godzilla versus King Kong made like 50 million dollars or 48.5 million dollars. It, it yeah. Was a I mean, ton of which money. is not the most like blowing the doors off of the box office kind of record for a non pandemic week. But considering I think that the previous record holder maybe was five million in, in a week over uh, the last year. I think there was something else that got to 14. I'll have to double check. But it was like it might have been freaky, freaky. Uh, Tom and did, Jerry, did. I think, is what it was. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, and Wonder Woman had 16, 16.7. So but but uh, uh, but this this is like I mean, it's not like theatricals back, but it actually answers a question I have been asking this whole time, which is, is theatrical going to be back? Because even though I did go see nobody in the theater, I did not go see Godzilla vs. Kong because I have HBO Max and I watched it at home. On a normal non-pandemic week, I probably would have gone to see this in the theater. Yeah, you know, actually, my family and I watched it in the theater at Hot Rod Cameras, and that was absolutely the right place to watch that movie because it's just sort of a spectacle. And I have to say that one of the best things that HBO did, and it, it was really particularly effective for my kids, is that after we watched this movie, they have also on there, oh, the original Godzilla and the original King Kong. So you, you could actually, you know, immediately just click over and like, hey, we want to see how far they've come in, in you know, 60 years. Oh, you mean and, like and, and 90 I, I years? Thought, I thought you meant the Gareth Edwards. Uh... No, no. The original, original 1933 King Kong and 1952 uh, Godzilla. So that's nice. so really, really. So like, did you watch all three of those? No, we watched uh, Godzilla versus Kong. And then we saw we watched like with 15 minute segments, like very key segments of the other ones. And my kids were like, oh, man, the stop frame animation <laughs> stuff from king kong is incredible but it's also you can just see how far the world is, has changed yeah, yeah. so yeah well yeah and your screening room is pretty amazing i, it, I it's just, a good place to watch that for sure i just watched it on a regular old flat panel tv at my house and it wasn't bad but alicia kept saying while we were watching it this would probably really be amazing on the big screen and everything you watch at home it's not that it takes the cinema out of anything but it really does I'll say this, going to see nobody in the theater, and this is the first time, again, the, the first time I've been in a movie theater since I think last February, like February of 2020, when I saw The Invisible Man. It's like, uh, my phone is in my pocket, I'm not playing words with friends or checking my email or checking Twitter <laughs> no or doing anything else. I can't pause it and go to the bathroom and come back. It's a movie in a theater like we've gone to our entire lives. And it really is a different experience and watching nobody, which I think is a movie, it's a movie that uses the frame and the space and everything very effectively. I'm imagining watching it at home. It's not that it would be a bad movie at home, but I think it's more powerful to see it that big. And I can only imagine with uh, Godzilla versus Kong that, you know, cause that movie is in so many ways, just rip shit bonkers and just audacious. It would be so much fun to see it on the big screen, but I have to admit, I'm still a little spooked at the idea of going to a crowded theater, even if by crowded it's at 25 or 50% capacity or whatever we have to hold to in, in California. Like Alicia and I intentionally went on a day 
when we knew there weren't going to be very many people in the theater and we and it was a matinee you know which are usually more sparsely attended i, I was also interested to see i mean and i i've known this since they announced godzilla versus kong but the guy who directed the 2016 blair witch movie adam wingard mm-hmm. uh this is this is his uh, entree into being uh a mainstream blockbuster director. I'm very interested to see what he does next. Apparently uh, he and his uh, writing partner, Simon Barrett are talking about doing an adaptation of Thundercats. So uh, (laughs) we all have that to look forward to. One of the things that I appreciate about this run of movies that includes Kong Skull Island, the original Godzilla, Godzilla King of the Monsters, and this movie. It's not exactly the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but they definitely were taking it in this direction. They wanted to have a Godzilla versus Kong movie. But one of the things I appreciate is that if you look at the people who they've tapped to direct these movies, Godzilla was Gareth Edwards, and uh, Godzilla King of the Monsters was Michael Doherty, who uh, is a a low-budget horror filmmaker as well. He did a great movie called Trick or Treat, if you've never seen it. And then, of course, Adam Wingard, he and Simon Barrett were so well known for making movies like Your Next and The Guest. Yeah, Uh, The the Guest is wonderful. Just uh, really kick ass horror people. I just think it's cool that they tapped all these horror people to make these uh, giant monster movies, because I do feel like each one of them in their own way knows how to scratch the itch. You know, Gareth Edwards obviously did Rogue One, which he did after Godzilla, I believe. But before that, he made a $250,000 movie called Monsters that he directed and DP'd and edited and did all the visual effects for. That is actually a really effective low budget movie. And that was why they got him to do uh, Godzilla, the original or not the original, but I think it's the 2016 Godzilla. Yeah. And I don't know if you happen to notice when you watch Nobody, but that was directed by Ilya, spelled almost the same as as, yeah. as mine. Uh, Nyshuler, who, of course, made Hardcore Henry and oh, yeah. uh, and, st- no, no. and stuff like that, which let me tell you, between like action and actiony, horror type of stuff. I mean, that, his stuff's incredible. So there's there's quite a bit of genre stuff uh, happening right now. It's really it's really interesting. And I, I love seeing for obviously selfish reasons. I just I just love seeing genre people getting a chance to take a bite uh, of, of the big thing. And I can show you something, too, here. But Ooh, I got the new that. issue of, of Fangoria which is being published by a new publisher now. And uh, is it, it glossier? And, and re- reading Fangoria is, is like uh, snuggling up in a warm blanket for me because I, I grew up on <laughs> Fangoria. But Godzilla vs. Kong is the cover of this month's Fangoria, or it's this quarter's because it's a quarterly. It's a, an amazing magazine, what they've done with it. Anyway, enough of that. I think we should go ahead and dive right into Matty Libatique. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. So we are here, couldn't be more excited to bring back one of our returning champions, Matthew Matty Libatique. Uh, our producer, Alana Cody, called me and asked if uh, we could set up a time to speak with him. And I was like, anytime. <laughs> uh, you're one of my favorite DPs out there. You've, you've been doing such amazing work for so long. And uh, before I even get into it, and I know I told you this off mic, but uh, there's exactly one movie poster hanging in my house. And it is the giant four foot, five foot high pie poster. My, my two and a half year old son eats breakfast in front of it every day. Someday you're have to explain yourself (laughs) show him pie and his mind will be blown (laughs) i was a projectionist when that movie came out at an art house theater in orlando florida called the enzian theater and i would go on my day off and watch the movie i can't tell you how many times i've seen that movie i've studied it so thank you so much for coming on uh you have a new uh movie out right now dropped on netflix just a couple of days ago called the prom that is a musical a lot like pie a lot like pie 
a lot like pie in that it's about some very uh, obsessive people who kind of are a little solipsistic and uh, except it's a musical and it's bright colors and uh, anyway yeah I mean it's a beautiful film uh, it's hilariously funny it's well written and it's interesting I don't I don't know that we've spoken with anyone who shot a musical or talked about specifically a musical like this ever which is almost in the tradition of old Busby Berkeley musicals in a sense but but you know reinvented for today but t- tell me a little bit about how you go about approaching a musical today because it's uh it's a genre that is is hard to get the tone exactly right and you know from a visual standpoint I'm fascinated to know even like how you go about even approaching that material I took my cue, my personal cues I took from the play you know mm. I, I I watched it and uh, I was extremely entertained. I was blown away by how entertaining it was. But then I was terrified at the end because I had no idea how you translate it into cinema. Yeah. And I, you know, I think that uh, for Ryan and myself, you know, also having worked together never, <laughs> <laughs> trying to find a way to uh, do a translation of this thing into movies was probably the largest challenge. So it w- had to be entertaining, but we had to figure out how to bridge the gap between what is the musical and what is the reality of the narrative and try to figure out how to interpret this thing in a cinematic way. I think that was the chief challenge. If it got too big and it got too sound of musicy, then we would check ourselves. If it got too, uh, if it wasn't enough because it wasn't impactful from a photography standpoint, let's say, then we'd have to check ourselves. So it was difficult that way. I mean, I had never really done anything. People say, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of music, but I've never done a musical. Yeah. You know. Yeah, you've done. I music wouldn't videos. characterize anything I've done as a musical. So. But um, no, I mean, I, people ask me all the time whether or not my music video experience helps me with doing music and films. I'm like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> you know, maybe it does subconsciously, but it's, it's, there's nothing about, you know, you can always cut back to the band in a video back in the day, you know. And um, when I was doing them, they weren't as sophisticated as they, they are now in terms of being the art form they've become. And also, like, to compare it to A Star is Born a little bit, I'd love to kind of talk about the differences in those two movies, because A Star is Born is is a much more naturalistic, gritty thing. And this is like camera flying all over the place, bright <laughs> yeah. colors. It feels like a very controlled color palette. And I'm, I'm kind of interested in how you all went about developing the look specifically of the prom. You know, it was, it was, again, it was that exploration of what's real. How do we coalesce these two worlds together? Yeah. And in my mind, it was always the infiltration of this sort of liberal attitude into a, a town that was, uh, had an uh, element of intolerance. So, I, you know, it, it was that color was motivated from the beginning of the movie. It was established from Broadway. It was established basically as a metaphor for these particular characters and their narcissism and their ability to sort of interject what, into any environment and then sort of contaminate <laughs> that environment with their attitude, whether, for better or for worse. I think um, the camera movement and the color and, you know, Ryan likes to use this term color blocking. And it's about uh, combining colors and whether it's it's in design, whether it's in um, costumes, makeup, uh, cinematography is a color blocking. And that once we discovered that palette, I think we were off to the races when it came to color. And that's that that's my takeaway, really, from working with Ryan is like he gives you the motivation to do these bold choices because he wants bold choices, whether they be camera movement or color or light or how much theatrical lighting interjects within a realistic realm. And then uh, when you go too far, you, you'll, you'll get a slap on the wrist. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I'm really interested in the color blocking thing that you mentioned earlier. Can you describe in more detail like how that works? 
It well, it's um, for example in the high school there's a there's a palette basically. It's it's his term for palette, really. mm-hmm. and color blocking within the Broadway realm uh, was that what you see in the logo, which is like a magenta and a yeah. purple, aqua, cyan, and then what you see in the you know the reality of uh, Clearwater, Indiana is a uh, sort of a yellow and blue high school themed palette. And for us, it was like, how do we create the, how do we make those, you know, those colors don't have, actually have to be within the light. They ha- they could be within the design, which is what it was in the reality of Indiana. But yeah. it was interjected in the light when it came to uh, Broadway. And those are like delineating factors, but they still represented a certain color blocking. Um, so, you know, if you look at the final prom, it's like the amalgamation of everything we had done up until that point where all of a sudden the light became the color blocking, just like it was at the very beginning of the film. Oh, interesting. So it's sort of, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you're kind of using it to describe the arc or using it to kind of set up kind of a color premise sort of and then pay it off by combining them in in interesting ways, like using them symbolically. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to you have to apply all these um, thoughts when it comes to palette in a narrative way. And I think um, we were able to do that. And I I think that's something that Ryan does with his with with Jamie, the production designer, with Lou, the costume designer. They've done that for years. I was like Mm. the kid who came in. I was literally the kid who came in uh, a senior year of high school. From another, <laughs> another place, so it was. It, it's so funny because we, you know, I always think about all my friends that worked on Dreamgirls and how they they always brag about how much time they had to choreograph <laughs> the light and the camera. I'm like, I didn't have any of that time. <laughs> you know, it was about me looking. Sometimes I'd look at a video and prep, and then sometimes I'd go check it out. But I didn't have the benefit of having my you know camera operator or my Steadicam operator looking at it. You know, it was just me memorizing it and being able to communicate things. And then working with my programmer for the light and then having enough stuff up there and knowing what they did for us to create the light. The, the, the final sequence was a complete improvisation of lighting. Really? A complete improvisation. The, the one thing we did is because I did this timeline, I break down every film in a certain way. That was a long meandering scene in the play. And it was a long meandering scene. And when I say meandering, I'm not, it's not a negative thing. It just, it just had beat after beat after beat within the same scene with un, under the same heading of scene number, which is insane. So for me, I, I just talked to the programmer, my gaffer, my key grip, and I was like, okay, these are the beats that are happening emotionally in the story. And I would be like, A, B, C, D, E. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say, we need to come up with a transition. So we, that's the first thing we did. It's like, we need to come up with a light sweep every time we're going through an emotional <laughs> change to get to the next place. And we just started improvising the inside of that, you know, and that, that was, um, it was a challenge, but it was exciting too. That's really interesting. And, and you brought up something that I, I like to kind of ask everyone, cause I, I feel like it's a little uh, procedural, but how do you keep track of all this stuff? Do you, are there programs you use? Do you use a notebook? Like, especially when you're dealing with something where color palette is almost a character in the film and you know, I'm assuming nothing's shot in sequence. How do you keep track of where you are and kind of know that you're in the right place when you're shooting? Cause it, it, you know, also, you know, with these huge stars and everything that you're dealing with, I'm sure schedules can get a little out of control. One of the first things I do is break down the film. I just take apart each scene and, and I separate them. And I do a spreadsheet of what the scenes are, what they're supposed to mean, like what I think the scene's about, and then my initial notes on mm-hmm. the scene. Then I just keep track of that sort of timeline over the course of the show. My favorite thing is to cross them out after they're done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but that's how I sort of keep track of like where does this where does this fall? Where does this scene if I'm on a day where does this scene fall in the grand scope of the movie? 
Mm-hmm. You know, but what's most important is when you take a scene and you break the scene down in beats. Yeah, you know, I think that's more important, even more important than just you know separating scenes because those are already separated within a screenplay. And in uh, something like the prom, were y'all working off of storyboards or any kind of prepared? Like, how did you prepare to cover the musical numbers? Because they all kind of they're all like an action scene or something in that they all kind of tell their own story and come to their own climax. How did you go about building those sequences? Well, you know, in a musical, things are very presentational, whether it's a cabaret or Chicago. Things are like right, you know, the actor, the performers right in front. So there's not um, rocket science, know where to put the camera for the master. (laughs) But um, Ryan's very attuned to editing, like his the way he wants to cut something and the pacing he wants. So um, he would have a series of specials. It could be three. It could be 10 special shots that he was just like, I want to focus on this moment, this moment only within a master. So that's kind of how we approach almost all of them. So I'd love to uh, go back because I've, you know, read a lot about your work, but honestly, I don't know when you, when the spark hit you to become a cinematographer. Like what was that moment that early on film school or whatever, where it first kind of occurred to you that this might be a career path for you? Uh, I didn't, you know, uh, early on, I, I thought a director did everything. <laughs> I didn't yeah. know what a cinematographer was until I watched Do the Right Thing. And then, um, and then people started to talk about, and then I started to tune into these relationships like Ernest Dickerson and Spike Lee and uh, Bertolucci and Storaro and Willis and Allen or Willis and Coppola or Willis and Pacola. <laughs> yeah. You know, and at the time it was what was huge is Richard Sidstone. Oh, yeah. Massive influence. So the, these relationships sort of, um, you know, I thought, how cool would that be? To, you know, be right there at the camera. And I was attracted to light. I was attracted to camera. I was attracted to composition and photography in general. And I, I um, as soon as I saw to do the right thing, I was, a, I was a sponge for that kind of relationship and those kind of films and, and that kind of voice. Were, so, you, um, were you already uh, like on a path to be a filmmaker when you saw that, or was that the thing that sparked your interest? I was already interested in films, but I didn't really... Um, I was a babe in the woods. I had no idea, you know, what, what anybody did. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if I could go back to meet that age me and then see how many people it takes to do what I do now, I think the, <laughs> that guy would just run away from me. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> But yeah, I mean, that, that was it. I mean, I, would Spike, I, I credit Spike Lee. I watched Do the Right Thing, and I'm thinking to myself, it's like, what, it was the first time I thought that a person of my upbringing could do something as cool as that. You mm-hmm. know? Yeah, and so everything has been leading to pie, so Ilya will keep me uh, honest, because, again, I, I've seen this movie a million times, and I probably, like, I've read a bazillion stories about it, but uh, you shot that on black and white reversal, and if I'm not mistaken, it was to uh, kind of get a Sin City kind of a look, like all black or all white in the frame. Can you talk about how the look for that movie was developed? Because it's very low budget, but I, for my money, possibly the best of the crazy low budget indie movies that came out of the 90s, for sure. It was, you know what, it was born out of, it was born out of the concept of what we didn't have. Um, mm-hmm. You know, having been overeducated at AFI, <laughs> you know, you you don't have the benefit of um, accepting what you can do wrong and get away with. We didn't have that. Like, we didn't have that spirit, you know. But, you know, I came out of, I was like, I like to say I was a classically trained cinematographer. So coming out and saying I can't have half CTO, quarter CTO and full CTO or I can't have uh, CTB because we couldn't afford gels. And uh, uh, my biggest light was a, you know, dented 2K that I got for free. <laughs> like, I, uh, I was literally, um, 
black and white was a choice because we didn't have color control. Yeah. And then beyond that, we had seen a film, Let's Get Lost, which is a it's a film about Chet Baker that was made by Bruce Weber, and we were completely blown away. And then we saw uh, another film by another cinema—I mean, uh, another photographer, Arthur Elgort, uh, Colorado Cowboy. And these two films like became the, for some reason, just visually became the sort of inspiration for us. And we found out that Bruce went to Bono Labs in Virginia, and I was like, "Wow, I want to meet these guys." So I called Bono Labs, talked to Joe Bono, and the rest is history because we just decided to shoot it like that. And then, like you know, it stylized the film automatically. But it was really volatile for me because I hadn't had that experience of, you know, I hadn't had a lot of black and white experience, and I was experimenting with yellow filtration, green filtration. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but like. Like I said before, like a lot of the mistakes I made are the things that were most successful and people like the most, which is, it still blows me away. But I, um, I, I think I would fuck that film up if I did it now. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, I think it'd just be as, it'd be bland. Interesting, yeah. because I mean, I feel like as a giant fan of Aronofsky's work, Black Swan, which you also shot, is the closest thing, in my opinion, to a companion piece to Pie in his filmography, in that it's kind of about a central crazily yeah. driven character who's willing to push themselves over the edge and i feel like you know black swan is is a gorgeous gorgeous film but one of the things i wanted to ask you about pie was where the idea for the body rig came from because i feel like that people who've never seen pie have never heard of pie we are now used to seeing the the body rig which is i don't you know it's some kind of body mounted rig where the camera's pointed at the actor's face but the actor's basically controlling the camera and it's moving with their body and you can sort of feel that when you watch it. And it's one of the most copied styles. And the first time I ever remember seeing it was in Pi. I don't know if you saw it somewhere else first, but I feel like the way you used it in Pi is, is the way it's been used ever since. Can you talk about kind of the creation of that effect? Well, we got the effect from Adar and Anar Snorri. Mm -hmm. These Icelandic photographers at the time, you know, we, we were working um, in New York at a time in the 90s where it was like anything goes, you know, we're, we met these guys, they were doing music videos and they were basically they had a rig for a still camera and they were doing rapid fire stills in film with this rig. And we saw a video that they did, you know, and uh, we our production office was at a music video company and we had all this access to VHSs of like people's shit, like three quarters, like put this in and we'd sit there watching. Like, Whoa. And so it was like all these ideas it was like uh you know when you hear about people you know who sort of uh met other artists of their time and we just said we want to do something like that and we ended up modifying it with a weight belt a monopod and a bolex and mm -hmm. we just said we want to do that for this but you know subsequently we get credited a lot for that we call it the snorri cam darren dubbed it the snorri cam and, and those guys are still around with a with a with a much more sophisticated version of that mm -hmm. and they're doing great stuff but frankenheimer did it scorsese did it if anything i would say maybe it was born out of new york we didn't invent it because you know john frankenheimer did it in seconds you mm -hmm. know and um, I think there might be a glimpse of it in um, either Mean Streets or Taxi Drive. But it's like once you, you know that feeling, you know, and it's one of those things where you have to, you kind of have to use it sparingly. It's one of those techniques that's so recognizable. Yeah. But if you use it in the right way, it just sets something off in just the right way. Just like a spice, you know, like a flavor. Like you want to throw a, a anise in something, but like if you put too much, it's going to just destroy it all. <laughs> well, 
Well, and I, and I feel like Darren Aronofsky and you uh, established another style that I've seen in his films several times, I think most notably in Requiem for a Dream, but it's like a series of crazy macro close-ups that are kind of used as a recurring motif throughout the movie uh, sort of as a transitional thing like in in pie it's him taking the pills you know like the that quick cutting montage yeah. to kind of show that and then in requiem you took it even further can you talk a little bit about like was that stuff in the script were those ideas that you guys had and like where did they come from you know it's something darren developed um it was motivated from hip-hop he called it the hip-hop montage right mm. we did a we were at afi doing our second cycle project in our first year and um you only have, I think, two or three days to shoot like your film, and we knew we had a lot to do when we hooked up. Like we hooked up to make this film called Protozoa, which is the name of his company. And um, I was living in Westwood at the time, but I had this garage that I wasn't using, and I had access to gear that a lot of guys didn't have access to. Somehow, I was like, I had access to the same exact camera. So we uh, we did this like sort of clandestine shoot of inserts. Before we were supposed to shoot because we were like, we knew we needed more time. Oh man, they're going to hear this and they're going to screw up your I don't care. Now. You could fucking sue me. I don't give a shit. <laughs> like, it's, this is what filmmaking is, man. You try to get over. And um, we basically, I didn't hire anybody. I didn't get anybody from film school to help us. We literally, I got a bunch of people I knew and we, we went and lit up my, we just lit up my garage and we did all these montages. So when you watch Protozoa, but that you can see it, like all the hip hop montages, which basically that language established, came from that shoot we weren't supposed to do ahead of time because we didn't want to spend time doing it during the rest of our shoot. So we sort of stole that. I wonder if he remembers. I actually haven't asked him about that, but like, we literally had a bunch of people that didn't go to AFI, and uh, it was me and him and the producer. <laughs> In your face, Dean, whatever. We never said, I mean, obviously we didn't say anything. We did, you know, severely penalized, I'm sure. We had this paranoia that they had some kind of tracking devices on the cameras and like the footage. I'm like, then I started thinking to myself, like, there's no fucking way they have anything. <laughs> so I'm assuming Pi opened a lot of doors for you because I feel like your career kind of explodes shortly after that. And it was, you know, pick, picked up at Sundance, I believe. Huge art house phenomenon. The next movie, and actually you, you mentioned uh, uh, Rob Schmidt, and I think it was the, the next movie I ever saw that that you had shot. And I saw it at the Los Angeles Film Festival in 1999. And it wow. was at the time called Saturn. Uh, yeah. It was eventually released as Speed of Life, which I, I haven't seen. The I, I understand it's a different cut, but I thought it was an unbelievably emotional and moving uh, feature, uh, you know, really underappreciated feature. And it was uh, semi-autobiographical uh, from Rob's point of view, if, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and you knew him from, I didn't know that you knew him from AFI, but. Um, he was in our class. Mm -hmm. uh, Rob and Darren were good friends. Because uh, he was a was gaffer before that, right? He gaffed in New York, but like, it's one of those things in New York back in the early 90s, everybody did everything. So yeah. <laughs> Rob, Rob was a filmmaker through and through. He went to SUNY Purchase. You know, he, he, he went to school with Moby, Sarah well, Cawley, you know, they knew Witt Stillman. I mean, there was just like oh, that, wow. that indie, you know, it was in that New York vibe. Uh, that I believe was uh, Rob Schmidt's first movie. He became kind of well known as a horror filmmaker after that. But that movie is intensely, intensely personal. Yeah. And I don't think you were. I don't know if you were coming right off of Pi, but it was within the the, la the next few years after Pi. In fact, I think it was around the same year as Requiem, if I'm not mistaken. It may have been a year or two. It was Pi, then Saturn, then Requiem. Mm -hmm. So 
It's funny because we did Pi and then we met some people and then Rob was able to get his film off the ground. He met some people and those some of those producers ended up being on Requiem. So it was just, yeah. you know, we had our thing going for a while until um, uh, Saturday didn't have an audience. It didn't do great uh, in, you know, in any respect. I think maybe that's a film that would have been maybe... Um, I kind of it's akin to Native Son to me, you know, like mm. like it should have been seen by more people. I wish it had been seen by more people because both films like have this equal. I, I have this equal uh, affinity and love for those two movies. But Saturn was a, a deeply personal thing. It's one of those things where he made that short out of SUNY Purchase. He made a short film about the same thing, and it's about his father. It's about his experience, and um, it's it was moving then. Sarah Cawley, uh shot it and. Um, when it came time to make the feature and he was able to get enough money, then he asked me to do it. And I was, I jumped at the chance because, you know, I was just kind of blown away. Anytime a director feels something so personal, like you, you want to be a part of it. Like, um, you know, Darren's The Fountain is an extremely personal film. And Rob Schmidt's Saturn is an extremely personal film. And like, and when you, when you deal with a director who's actually so connected, you want to be a part of it. And then Saturn was that way. Plus, I was learning, and we were shooting short ends the entire time. Oh, man. Like, okay, what do we have left? Like, 250. Okay, we could do it with this 250. Oh, man. Literally. Like, if we had anything that was like 380, 370, we're like, yes. All right, we could shoot (laughs) this scene. That's amazing. So you've had, like, long-lasting careers with a few directors, or at least work with directors that span several movies. The most obvious one, I think, is Darren Aronofsky, in that you go back to work with him, you know, after doing these massive superhero movies or whatever, to make stuff like uh, Mother, you know, stuff that's, like, really personal, doesn't feel as big a budget, you know, is more challenging for an audience. But also, you know, you worked repeatedly with the late, great Joel Schumacher. You worked repeatedly with Spike Lee, who I, I didn't know about your do the right thing story. So that must have been, you know, a pretty amazing experience to work with the, the guy who whose film first sparked the idea in your head. Can you talk about like, you know, because some some uh, cinematographers just, you know, work hither and yon and bop around and don't necessarily work with the same people. And then you'll see people like the Coen brothers working with Roger Deakins over and over again. What do you get out of the repeated relationships with those directors you know it's a sign that you're doing the right thing to be quite honest <laughs> you know what i mean like you're doing the right thing you're making the right call you're, like, you're dedicating your craft to the right ideas and you're you're keeping you know you're keeping into focus what's important because mm. um it, it's easy to say that we you know director and cinematographer designer all of us have the same goal but that's not necessarily true and um it's only it's only evident when you get to repeat your collaboration with somebody that you do have the same goal. That's yeah. why you get asked back, right? And it's incumbent upon cinematographers. Like I, I talked about early on, I said Willis, Pakula, Willis, mm-hmm. you know, Coppola, Willis, Allen. Why yeah. is that? Because he understood what their each and every narrative was about, and he delivered for each and every narrative. You know, mm-hmm. like Parallax View and Manhattan aren't the same movies. You know what I mean? Godfather and Annie Hall are certainly not the same film. <laughs> But the same man did all of them, right? Yeah. It's because you keep your you use your craft to keep your eye on what's important, and then you get asked back. And the people who don't get asked back sometimes are um, really good and talented, but perhaps maybe they um, you got to watch out, man. You got to watch out what's important. I also I should have included in that list of directors you've worked with more than once, John Favreau, of course. But specifically on Darren Aronofsky, and I don't I don't want to spend you know the whole interview talking about his work, even though I think me neither. He's one of the most brilliant film. I mean, he's a huge inspiration for me. But um, 
Darren Aronofsky, it seems to me like has has almost intentionally kind of stayed at a, a place where he could control his work, which means he's not making Iron Man sized budget movies. He's making movies that are maybe a little bit more modestly budgeted, but also like are more from his heart. And during that period of time, obviously, you went on to shoot actual Iron Man and Cowboys and Aliens and, and uh, all these humongous movies. But you kept going back to work with him. And, you know, I assume you're friends. But like when I would talk about your work with people, one of the things that I thought was always intriguing is that you would go make Iron Man and then you'd go make a small independent movie. Whereas I feel like a lot of people, when they get to the point where they can make Iron Man, it's like, let's keep the cash flow going because uh, you can do it. So can you talk a little bit about like, what about that bouncing back and forth in scope and size and personal story kind of thing? Like, how does that keep your creativity alive? Well, I think it's kind of obvious why it does. I mean, you, you know, in each instance, you're asked to do a very similar thing because everybody has a box to make the movie. So, one box happens to be a lot bigger, and um, but another box has to be more defined because of its restrictions. And I learned that in Pi. You know, Pi was a film where we're like, okay, we don't have this, we don't have this, we don't have this, so we're gonna create within that thing what we can create. And like, I like, I like to go back to that. You don't have that on a bigger film. You have a lot of restrictions based on like union rules, let's say, or location costs, um, the cost of design versus visual effects. It's like there's, a, there's a litany of different things that happen on a larger film than happen in a smaller one. But like at the end of the day, you have the same task, which is like, okay, let's define this box and then let's try to create within it. Mm-hmm. And um, I like being able to go back and forth because I don't, I just have this fear, this, this, this uh, perpetual fear of complacency. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I don't want to become that person. And, um, you know, there's something completely unsatisfying about being on a really large film. And um, but there's something completely satisfying about being on a large film. Yeah. And when you're on a smaller one, there's something that's really um, gratifying, but also frustrating. So uh, I need both to satisfy what I want to do in my career. Uh, I wish it would all come together in one, but it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> So a, a low-budget superhero movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that was part one of Maddie Lee Batik. We still have way more stuff to get into. And uh, I always feel like when we're talking to somebody like Maddie, the hardest thing for me personally is... I could spend so much time on every one of on not every every one of his films but on so many of his films. So many of his films are amazing. I feel like I could do an interview just about Pi or Requiem for a Dream or Iron Man or you know like and he's he's such a varied guy in that he bops between kind of scrappy lower budget indie kind of stuff and you know massive huge budget stuff like Prom or or all of the superhero movies that he's done. And uh, anyway, so tune in next week for part two and uh, you will see that my enthusiasm for him never wanes. Hey, you know, I just figured I would check what uh, the stock price is for AMC right now because I had, of course, all that hoopla a few weeks ago when GameStop was a a whole thing. Uh, I wanted to see if, hey, was there an uptick at all because of, you know, the Kong, uh, Godzilla Kong box office returns? And no, actually, the stock is a little bit lower. So interesting. uh, So Wall Street hasn't yet set in. Or if you are someone out there who was like, hey, well, now that now that I've missed that ride and I I can't invest in a bunch of like really inexpensive shares of, of AMC or things like that. No, it clearly looks like uh, there there isn't confidence that the world is going back to theaters just yet. And if you want to play or you do play that that wild world of uh, investing in stocks, uh, it's it's like nine bucks or something right now. 
Interesting, because I bet uh, I, I don't bet, but I don't know. <laughs> I don't know anything about the stock market. But it seems to me like after this weekend, the stock for uh, the various movie companies might start to creep back up. Yeah, it would. It would seem like well, Disney's already been on the rise for a while. I know, but uh, and and from their their low in I think like March or something like that of 2020. So, and I know that they have theme parks opening again here shortly, or already starting to open, which is. You cannot pay me money to go to a theme park right now, even though I am vaccinated. I am not going to do that. And now, short ends. So, Ilya, it is uh, it is that time for our uh, short ends, our pet obsessions of the week. What is yours? I, I got to give some props to Canon. Canon, who, of course, one of the largest DSLR mirrorless cameras out there and very, very One could popular. argue invented the idea of the mirrorless DSLR filmmaking camera. No, you can't. They did not. I can't? No, they were very late to the mirrorless party. But it was... But oh, it was, oh it, I'm sorry. I didn't mean mirrorless, but DSLR, like the 5D yes. Mark II was kind of the... the 100%. 100%. Page, you can give them that. Zero. You can sorry. give them that credit. They were they were late to the mirrorless game, but they've really, really made some good strides. And that's kind of actually what I want to talk about there. They, they had a couple of cameras come out. Uh, one called the R5, which is actually an 8K camera. And another one called the, the R6, which is essentially a 4K camera. And they share a lot of the same features, a lot of the same stuff, but there was a fairly decent price difference between them. Well, they're continuing to separate those two products because there was a free firmware that just came out. And the free firmware for the R5 unlocks a new form of internal raw recording, which is raw light. And for everyone who's just sort of, you know, all these technical terms like raw and model numbers are flying past them. uh, All I'm trying to say is that raw light actually gives you essentially very close to the same 12 bit raw 2600 megabit, like these massive file sizes um, of of recording inside the camera now in a more compressed, uh, more lightweight, easier to post produce uh, footage so that the camera is going to be that much more flexible and capable uh, going forward. And of course, there's a lot of other cameras out there that do record raw, uh, either internally or externally and flavors like ProRes raw, which of course is one of those other like big heavy formats that takes up a lot of card space and uh, Blackmagic, like we talked about before now has uh, B-RAW available for Panasonic cameras from external recorders, which is like a lightweight version. So it's like you get all this image quality, all this capability, but now much smaller file sizes. And I think this is just sort of an amazing example of how Canon is really paying attention to the market. Now, before they sort of kicked off the DSLR revolution with the uh, 5D Mark II and then following up the 7D, they hadn't really released a lot of firmwares to unlock new features, but they're really paying attention and they're doing this more and more often. And they're also creating separation between the R5 as like this flagship camera and the much less expensive, but very similar sort of uh, setup camera, the R6. And um, the R6 doesn't get the raw light that the R5 gets, and it doesn't have the 8K recording mode. So it really, it's it's interesting to see what's happening here and the foot race sort of between the different uh, mirrorless camera manufacturers in the space and this whole mini cinema movement, which has been going on for some time. But I think there's this real interesting sort of resurgence, like pretty much a huge amount of the content and stuff that's being made for the web is being done on these cameras. And I know that it's uh, functionally a bit of a pain in the butt compared to real cinema cameras or other sorts of like cameras that are really designed for video. 
the the things that are happening now are really sort of increasing the quality standpoint and uh, the usability is getting better and firmware updates like this is showing that Canon's really kind of paying attention to it. So uh, really amazing stuff. Kudos to Canon for bringing this out so that uh, people can basically get a lot more recording time uh, on their card. And uh, they've already had a firmware that kind of addressed the overheating issue. And so I'm, I'm really pleased to see the direction that all the manufacturers are going. And, uh, you know, these cameras are a real alternative for people out there who a professional full line cinema camera or even sort of a mid range like, you know, Komodo, FX6, C70 sort of market. Uh, if that's too big of a hurdle to get into, I mean, really money now or a credit card or a small loan, uh, you can produce incredibly amazing looking images that are really the limitation is your skill level, not the technology anymore. So that, well, that's, and I, and I feel like we've already been uh, looking at this stuff for a long time. I, I always remember uh, kind of early DSLR days that uh, in uh, the movie black Swan, mm. uh, not, not to be all about Maddie Lee Batik, but here we go, that there were some shots. They shot that movie, I think on super 16, but there were shots on the subway that they stole I think they stole, or maybe they got the rights to do it, but they couldn't bring in enough lights. Or I don't know what the what, what the reasoning was, but it was shot on the 7D, the Canon 7D. And I saw that movie on a big screen in a theater, and you know I love Maddie's work, so I'm like paying attention to the way everything looks. And I don't, I didn't know that when I saw it. I just I read about it. I think an American cinematographer after the fact, and it was, and you know I've I've since watched it on Blu-ray, and uh, it doesn't jump out at you. I do know that there are, you know, like on Netflix, it's a big deal when you find out that a certain camera is cleared uh, by Netflix executives to be used for a film for Netflix. You know, if you go off and make your movie on your own and license it to Netflix, that's one thing. But if you're making it, you know, by definition for Netflix or Amazon Prime, they have, you know, sort of standards and practices and they get kind of wonky about which cameras you're allowed to use. I remember doing a thing for Crackle years ago and we had to shoot on the Red Epic and it was because they needed 4K because they wanted to future-proof it, even though they were only going to release that project in HD so that they they could reassemble it in a, at some future point in 4K. And uh, I think that a lot of these companies are very savvy about which sensors, blah, 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 look like what. So it, it becomes... You kind of have to know that going in. But I, at the same time, you know, like my friend Kevin Ward made a, a movie on the A7S Mark II that I thought looked amazing, you know, and uh, I did see it on a big screen. Like, I thought it looked great. And I think that it's been going this way since DSLR started to kind of invade the, the world that it becomes a lot more about the talent behind the camera and, frankly, uh, what the needs of the production are. Because if the needs of the production are more kind of studio centric then you probably need bigger beefier studio sized cameras but if you're doing something where you know you, i i watched uh, a film on netflix that somebody had recommended the other day and there are all these scenes on a boat you know which you're never supposed to shoot on a boat it's like the biggest most cumbersome pain in the ass and and you could tell this movie didn't have a big budget and i don't know what they shot it on but i suspect it must have been something like that it must have been some small digital cinema camera but you know mirrorless dslr or regular dslr because it just looked like they literally were on the boat with maybe a bounce card and lav and lav mics you know like one you know the director operating the camera is what it looked like to me and it looked fine you wouldn't question it it, you, it wouldn't jump out at you at all I know that the jumping off point for this was, you know, Canon and Canon with a firmware update. And what I really want to say is I think it's really interesting and it's important to pay attention to that these manufacturers are taking 
products that originally were not supposed to be for this industry at all. They've gotten so good, they compete in some ways, not every way, but in some ways with high-end products. For sure. And the fact that they are paying attention and introducing these new um, recording formats, uh, new updates, and that they make them free, really, it's amazing. And I'm glad that Canon is paying attention and Canon and Sony and Panasonic in particular and Blackmagic are all sort of in this uh, in this hunt to take over this new market, which I don't know exactly how to quantify it yet because a lot of the, the, of course, digital creators and YouTubers and stuff who are trying to separate themselves from the people who are just doing everything on their phone are going this way. But it's also dipping down from the high end. I, I mean, I, I talked to people who like, oh, yeah, we had 20 Blackmagic cameras for this setup or for the scene or for whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. They, they're they well, really finding creative ways to use this, this technology. Yeah, it enables you to do stuff that if you had to do it with film cameras or even if you had to do it with Reds or Alexas or something, it would just be cost prohibitive, space prohibitive, uh, or, you know, for whatever reason, you just would never be able to do some of these things because the because the cameras are so, you know, so goddamn small. Uh, you know, I, I've shot on stuff like I, we, we shot an episode of 20 Seconds to Live on the Alexa and it looked amazing and I love the Alexa, but the Alexa came up as a last minute option and we jumped on it. And before then we were planning on shooting it on, on I think the 5D Mark III or something. And when the Alexa came up, I was like, well, there go all my handheld shots because, you know, we had a rig that was just not conducive to that. And the camera fully built with the lens that we had was just too heavy and too big. So, you know, we, we did it all on dolly and sticks and it was fine. But, uh, you know, it, those do those kinds of things do uh, tweak your creative decisions on the day, too. And I, I think that probably a lot of productions are, you know, even ones that are riding with the big cameras have, you know, an A7S Mark III or whatever tucked in their kit somewhere so they can bang off establishing shots or whatever or, you know, sometimes get a second angle. And, you know, we did a we did a setup once again on an episode of 20 Seconds to Live where we did a shot directly above somebody and uh, we used, I think it was the Panasonic GH5, and it cut in perfectly well with the Varicam. Looked great. Like, you know, obviously we color corrected everything, but, it, you know, you'd never know. And it was, you know, if we tried to get that shot with the Varicam, there just wasn't room above the person before you hit ceiling to to set up that rig. But, you know, these cameras are so tiny that you can really do some amazing stuff. And really, it's like, you know, the Canon cameras, they do have, at least the R5 does have raw internal recording as well. But the fact that now that they are updating it so you can do all kinds of extra stuff with it is just absolutely incredible. Yeah. So, stunning, yeah. stunning stuff. Awesome. So Ben, what's yeah? What's your what's your short end? Uh, it is uh, yet again an HBO documentary. <laughs> uh oh, they're they're on a on a tear. So it's called Q Into the Storm, and uh, it's uh, written, directed, and shot. So this guy's one man band by a guy named Colin Hoback, and it's about the QAnon conspiracy theory that kind of took over the world of a certain kind of conservative politics here in America. And a lot of it deals with kind of ground zero for uh, where the Q, QAnon stuff came up, which is a web board called 8chan. And it features the guy who created 8chan, who's locked in a feud with the guy who purchased 8chan from him and his son. And it's sort of like part uh, War Games, you know, the movie with Matthew Broderick, it's like part war games, part Scott Pilgrim versus the world and uh, part Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Like these people do not live in a real world. They, they live in, a, in, a, in, a, in an absolutely fucked up virtual world and they're like fucking with each other. But when they do, 
the Capitol riot happens partially as a result. Like this is like dorks on the internet. And I say that uh, I'm a dork on the internet too. I'm not, I'm not down on dorkiness, but these are like people who are gaming the internet and it's not even all young guys. Like one of the creepiest guys is the guy who owns 8chan and he's probably in his fifties or sixties and they interview him a lot and he is a, a distasteful person. And how many and, episodes into it are you? There are a total of six episodes and uh, they've dropped up to, up to episode five and I've seen up to episode five and uh, kind of a thrilling documentary in that like our guy is kind of in with all of the warring camps uh, when terrible things happen between them. He's like there a lot. And, you know, there I don't want to uh, spoil anything. But in uh, episode five, there is a, uh, a a race to get to the airport before terrible things happen. And you're just there with them and you kind of see him and you even sometimes will see him in reflections or shadows. And it's I don't know what camera exactly he's holding, but it's a DSLR. <laughs> you know, he's mm. just flying with the DSLR. He does, uh, you know, good sit down interviews with with people. But even then, it's he's not like rocking anything that big. And actually, the show looks pretty damn good and and they make weird choices that i think are interesting like when somebody doesn't want their uh their image to be on the interview like they're willing to be interviewed but they're, they don't want to show their face they do weird cgi like it's it's like they're a cgi avatar they're not a person it's not like a person with their face blocked out it's like uh in one case it's an animated cicada <laughs> <laughs> for for reasons that make sense within the episode and you know i would say it kind of has a sense of humor about what it's covering because it is a goofy conspiracy like if you're into QAnon and you're listening to the sound of my voice find help um <laughs> it, it's it's a truly goofy conspiracy but uh and then when you see the people who are kind of like you don't you don't know who is and they and it circles around the question of who is q and nobody really knows. Like, no one's unmasked who Q is up until now. But a few of the people they're interviewed, who, who, who they're interviewing, are people who are suspected of being Q. So there's like a kind of a sinister, dark edge to it because I think that those politics are sinister and dark. And I don't think that's an, again, I don't, I don't want to offend anyone and I'm not trying to be political here. But I think that like basing your worldview around an insane conspiracy theory about, about, uh, you know, Hollywood being full of uh, baby eating pedophiles. Uh, me, I don't live in Hollywood. I'm in the Valley, but I'm close enough to Hollywood that I, I think I would know about the baby eating uh, party. Every, everyone outside of Southern California, you are absolutely in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> is, but, you know, but Tustin but, is Hollywood. Right? But, are you, are but it's like, you know, basically like uh, a conspiracy theory that I think repurposes a lot of things that I would say come from anti-Semitic tracks like Protocols of the Elders of Zion and things like the Blood Libel and it's it's just insane the whole the whole coup conspiracy theory so it's interesting to see it kind of reduced to the people who are running the message boards and sort of what their various axes to grind are and they're all interesting characters and some of them are likable and some of them are uh just straight up creepy but it, I, i'd say it's it's a really interesting documentary and uh and and it is so of the moment so like this is happening right now that I, I think it's definitely worth checking out. And again, it does look pretty damn good, I think. All right. Well, Ben, I think that that just about gets us to the end of the show. Let's thank some people. Who should we thank this week? Number one, uh, we need to thank Kay Zalatrachi, who will not be listening to this episode, but he provided all of the music uh, that you've heard. And interestingly, Kay's reached out to me recently and said that on a uh, on a DaVinci Resolve forum, somebody uh 
told him that they were listening to our podcast and that we say that in every episode and he thought that was hilarious so <laughs> good i'm glad it came to him through a stranger through a forum like that rather than either one of us actually mentioning that to him that's wonderful absolutely yeah, yeah. um <laughs> that, you know we, we we have done our we've done our job <laughs> i i but, feel immensely proud now <laughs> so maybe it'll come back around and the person from the da vinci forum will hear us talk about them and i didn't get a name or i would i would absolutely name check them yeah we, we should 100 percent credit them yeah, yeah. I, I thank thank you, uh, mysterious Da Vinci Forum person, for uh, alerting case to that. Uh, we definitely, definitely need to thank Ben Katz, who's editing this and making us hopefully sound not quite as idiotic as we are. But mm, you know, I'm luck, okay ben. sounding a little bit like an idiot. I, I, don't, I don't mind if uh, if a little idiot. <laughs> it, slip, it happens. There. You know, it's just you know that's that's life. The last time I checked, we're, you know, if, <laughs> if we didn't make mistakes, no, I, I have I have no allegory for this. But I but appreciate really, when he cuts yeah. out me saying things like, what's a tripod? I've never heard of that piece of gear, you know, stuff like that. Like, you know, <laughs> yes, that, that, um, you're always saying that. <laughs> I'm always saying, yeah, what's a lens? What's that? What's that thing that light is coming out of? What do you call that? Um, and and lastly, but never leastly, we should thank Alana Cody, our intrepid producer, who uh, consistently is uh, busting her ass to get us some of these most amazing interviews, and uh, and we have some great ones still coming up. Oh yeah, if you liked this one too, it's like th- I think this one was this is great. This is the first half of greatness, but God, we got so much more behind it. There's there's a lot coming, so you have a lot to look forward to. Excellent. So Ilya, where can people find you online? Uh, find me over at Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. We sell uh, all manner of equipment for professionals. Uh, we sell Airy products and uh, everyone else on down to uh, humble mirrorless cameras uh, like we discussed quite a bit today. And uh, we also specialize in lenses and light. So you know, find me over there. I'm there. I'm there Monday through Friday. Well, you know, happy to help. Excellent. And you can find me at benrockonline.com. You can find all my social media connections there and uh uh, friend me you can check out my reel look at look at my work complain about me to other people whatever you want to do it's all good so i think that wraps us up uh we will see you next week for part two of maddie lee boutique can't wait thanks for listening this has been the cinematography podcast presented by hot rod cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.